This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll talk about radically changing our broken criminal justice system with Jody Armour. He teaches law at USC, and he's a prominent defender of Black Lives Matter, and his new book has just been published. It's about race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Also, our TV critic Ella Taylor recommends an award-winning film about Cuba that's sort of a documentary. It's called Epicentro. First up, Trump has found an issue that looks more promising than running on the economy or on the claim that Biden is under the control of radicals and socialists. It's the classic law and order scare tactic, claiming that anarchy and chaos are overtaking our cities, followed by the claim that I alone can stop them. We call it white backlash politics. It seems to have worked for Nixon in 1968 after there were big urban uprisings in Newark and Detroit and elsewhere in 1967. But will it work for Trump in 2020? For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Trump has been pointing to the arson and looting and now the killings in Portland and Kenosha. He, of course, he went to Kenosha on Tuesday to make the point, And now many of our friends are worried this might work, especially since it's so easy to provoke violence. And that's what Trump is suggesting his supporters do. We've seen those truck caravans in Portland and the armed militias in Kenosha, one of whose members killed two demonstrators for Black Lives Matter. And we are told all this is frightening, especially for suburban voters and for older voters, groups that had been moving away from Trump. Do you think this will work? Well, let's sort of disaggregate what's going on politically. If this were the only big problem riveting the nation's attention, I think it would stand a better chance uh, of working than it actually does. The fact is, uh, it's not. And if Trump is running away from the economy, uh, that, that suggests, unlike 1968, I might add, that the economy is in terrible shape and may well get worse uh, in the, the months between now and Election Day uh, because more businesses will fail. Uh, the Senate has refused to renew uh, the, the uh, aid to businesses. Um, it has uh, refused to renew the aid to the unemployed. Uh, so that, that's a major issue. And, and uh, you know, the pandemic is a major issue on which uh, Trump has scared the bejesus out of lots of seniors who, um, if, if they're sitting there and calculating what's more likely to get me, COVID-19 is a more likely culprit than urban unrest. Uh, so... Yes. So that's the first part. The second part is, as Joe Biden uh, pointed out in his remarks uh, at the start of the week, you know, whose America is, is more unsafe to live in by, even by Trump standards? Trump blames every Democratic mayor. And, and the fact is the vast majority of American cities have Democratic governments because that's who lives in cities. But, you know, Biden points out that this kind of living at the brink 
of, if not civil war, at least outbreaks of violence from one faction against the other faction is really, you know, peculiar to uh, Donald Trump's America. You know, the combination of all the above appears to be the Biden argument, and it's a strong argument. But, you know, mainly the difference between now and 1968 is in 1968, the, the Democrats had, uh, had to answer for the Vietnam War, which hurt the Democrats as well as the uh, uh, law and order attacks of Nixon. And uh, today, Trump has to answer for a lot more than the Democrats had to answer for in their losing campaign of 1968. Nixon was able to run as an outsider in 1968 because he was an outsider. He'd been out of politics for quite a while. Eight years. Trump Trump is trying to say, you know, what you're seeing in the cities today is Joe Biden's America, but it's not too hard for Biden and lots of other people to point out, actually, this is Donald Trump's America right now. It's It's not Donald Trump's America. He's the incumbent. And, you know, there's one more step in uh, running as the law and order candidate, and that is Trump continues to say this is really due to Biden and the radicals around him. And that last part of the equation I don't think uh, works uh, with, with any except the Trumpian base. Biden is, uh, for better and worse, a known quantity, and that ain't the quantity he has personified in, in low his many years in public office, which basically coincide with his many years simply as an adult. Uh, he, you know, he, he was elected to the Senate when he was 29 years old. So Americans have had a long time uh, to look at Joe Biden, and this is not what they have seen. Uh, Let's focus for a minute on Wisconsin. Of course, a key swing state. Trump won it last time just by 20,000 votes. He really needs to win Wisconsin this time if he's going to win the Electoral College. The 538 website this week has Biden at 49.9% in Wisconsin and Trump at 43.6%. That is Biden ahead by more than six and and very close to that coveted 50% point for Wisconsin, which is usually extremely close, except for the Obama election. Uh, uh, Wisconsin has been very close. The election were held today and Biden won by six points. That would be a phenomenal victory in, in Wisconsin. Trump has a long way to go if he's going to win in Wisconsin and focusing on Kenosha, not sure that's going to get him more than 6.3 points? Probably not. Uh, You know, one of the reasons Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin, as everybody knows, that they actually neglected to campaign there. In particular, there was really no effort to turn out the uh, black vote in Milwaukee, uh, which alone uh, was the death knell of, uh, of the Clinton campaign there. Uh, Democrats are not making that mistake again in the midterm elections of 2018, in which the state elected uh, a Democrat for governor, defeating Scott Walker. There was real activity in Milwaukee, which there had not been in 2016, and there will be more political activity in Milwaukee to mobilize the African-American vote uh, in 2020. There already is. Um, I just noted today that perhaps the uh, largest public sector union in Wisconsin, AFSCME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, is opening uh, a, a large number of field offices in, in swing states, inclu- very much including Wisconsin. So the Democrats are not 
going to repeat the, that particular deadly mistake of 2016. You know, the city which probably had the most extensive uh, arson and looting and destruction was, was Minneapolis. So this brings us to your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. I, I've been following the polls in Minnesota. George Floyd was was murdered on May 25th. So if we comp- if we look at the string of polls, which 538 makes it very easy to do, if white backlash politics was going to have an effect anywhere, you would think it would be in Minnesota, which has had the most sustained destruction. But the mini- the Minnesota polls have been astoundingly stable. This week, they are exactly the same as they were the week before May 25th when George Floyd was killed. Biden 50, Trump 44. Hasn't changed. So nothing that's happened has reduced the support for Biden in the state where Minneapolis is found. That makes me think that backlash politics is not going to work except to shore up the, the Trump's base, which is already, you know, committed. Uh, yes, and you know, th- there, there's been kind of an assumption that we're going through a Trump bump, as it were, that the Republican convention mobilized people and that it's really cut into Biden's lead. There was a uh, USC Dornsife poll out earlier this week, which was entirely conducted after the Republican convention ended, that showed Biden maintaining a 10 point lead nationally. So uh, I, I, I'm not sure if actually there is much of a Trump bump. It's also uh, the case that fewer people watched on television the uh, Republican convention than watched the Democratic convention, which also does not augur well for Trump. And while uh, obviously a lot of people dreamed it on, on other media, which, which is, can't be measured, given the relative technological aptitude of members of the two parties, and given that the Democrats skew younger than the Republicans, it's not likely that more Republicans overall watch than Democrats, quite the contrary. So uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that there is a Trump bump, but I, I think it's worth pointing out that the notion that there may be has, if anything, so far as I can figure out, motivated Democrats and Biden supporters and people who are lukewarm about Biden, but who are going to vote for him uh, to double down on their efforts. So we, we may be dealing here with the numbers running in one direction and the myth running in the other direction. On the other hand, I, I saw an re- interesting quote from Paul Soglin, the liberal mayor of Madison, on the occasion of Trump coming on Tuesday uh, to Kenosha. He said, quote, there's a significant number of undecided voters who are not ideological, and they can move very easily from the Republican to the Democratic column and back again. They are, in effect, the people who decide elections, close quote. I think he's talking especially about Wisconsin, where 20,000 people one way or the other can decide an election. And the concern is, so it doesn't take very many people to be alarmed by images on TV of cities in flames in the close states. Obviously, Oregon, they don't even bother polling in Oregon because Oregon is a blue state. And, you know, right. But in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Ohio, it wouldn't take very many. And this anxiety is combined with 
the point I opened with, how easy it is for Trump to mobilize militias to provoke violence. It's not hard to provoke violence in the streets of American cities these days. And no, and that's on Trump, but you're right. Well, you know, one uh, other difference that's worth pointing out uh, between 1968 and today is the really majorly, the major change in demographics of uh, the nation and the electorate since 1968, which was uh, 52 years ago, the number of potential white backlash voters, the share of potential white backlash voters, is a lot smaller than it was in 1968. Now, it is the case that as you go north in America, you tend to find a higher percentage of uh, of whites, uh, certainly in Minnesota, certainly in Wisconsin, notwithstanding the immigration of, of, of the last 30 years and so on. And so the, the white share of the electorate, the potential white backlash share of the electorate, has not declined probably as much in Wisconsin and Minnesota as it has, God knows, in California or you know other states that have uh, had a greater demographic transformation. So in that sense, there's definitely some credibility to what Paul Soglin has said. But even in uh, Kenosha, even in rural Wisconsin, it ain't 1968. And the, the white backlash strategy relies on images on TV. You know, Trump says our cities are in flames and, uh, you know, there's, there's chaos in Portland. If you talk to people who live in Portland, their lives are compl- they're staying home most like the way they're supposed to. If you want to go to the demonstrations, and a couple thousand people do, you go to the street where the demonstrations are every night. And if you want to fight the police, there's a specific place you go after the demonstration <laughs> outside yes. the courthouse and you fight the police. Otherwise, you know, life goes on in Portland. It's, the city is not in chaos. And it's only the TV images, which are, you know, very powerful and, and upsetting. And Trump is counting on those TV images, along with his own speeches and tweets, to scare people, older, white, and suburban people. But I, you have already suggested that the experience of actual daily life, fear of COVID, not having a job is a, is a much more powerful factor in most people's lives than what they see on TV news for, for five well, minutes. TV news always has had sort of inherently a tabloid quality. And there was the classic line about local news since, you know, at TV news really got going in the 1960s was if it bleeds, it leads. Anything about violent crime, usually that has nothing to do with politics, is, is what leads on, uh, on TV news. And if there are visuals, uh, yes. That actually, over the last uh, 50 plus years, has not changed. But as, as you just noted, uh, you know, what's changed is something that is harder to televise, which is people coming down with uh, uh, the COVID virus uh, and dying of it is, is actually pervasive, not simply a uh, uh, pervasive uh, via television magnifying it. There's, of course, another side to TV, which I'm eager to chat with you about, and that is Trump's uh, interviews on Fox, especially the one he did on Monday with Laura Ingram. He made this, let's call it a remarkable statement, quote, that there was, quote, 
An entire plane filled up with the looters, the anarchists, rioters, people looking for trouble, thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that, close quote. And Laura Ingram is obviously alarmed and trying to get him to walk this back, but, but he didn't. Uh, what, what did you make of that? Well, I mean, you know, we know airlines are desperate for money and it's, you know, so we could believe, I suppose, that they had a special cut rate for violent anarchists, you know, that, that they uh, uh, promoted this. But if you dismiss that possibility, point of which a Fox News nighttime celebrity uh, like uh, Laura Ingram has to rein in Donald Trump lest he shoot himself much higher than the foot you know, it suggests just, just how whacked out not only Trump, but really sort of the Trump electoral strategy is. And in that same interview, Trump also compared cops who shoot Black Lives Matter protesters with people who play golf. Well, uh, people who, who choke on short putts. Who choke uh, on short, short putts. putts. Yeah. And, and I would imagine even cops who support Trump would like to say, our job is not like playing golf. You know, I mean, the more you sort of get the unfiltered Donald Trump, and that line really was unfiltered Donald Trump, his frames of reference are both narrow and fictitious. You can see why the Republican campaign wanted him to, to stick to the teleprompter for his convention speech. Yes, and of course, the price for that was it, it so bored him. He, <laughs> yes. he, the time seemed like he, was, he just was... Uh, trying to go through it relatively quickly so he wouldn't actually fall asleep while, uh, while reading the text. One last thing. You have a modest proposal about Trump violating federal law, to wit, 18 U.S. Code Section 2101. Please tell us about Section 2101. Well, what Section 2101 does is it says if you're crossing state lines, or using media that cross state lines, like television and radio, to incite a riot, you can be punished by a fine and imprisonment up to uh, five years. And it seems to me that, that you know, the difference between the way uh, Trump going out on the campaign trail or, or simply saying things like he said to Laura Ingram and being subject to that section because you're crossing state lines to incite a riot at best, the, the difference there is in the eye of the beholder. And uh, at, at worst, uh, this might be an open and shut case. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about changing our broken criminal justice system. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC and a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute's Center on Crime, Communities, and Culture. He's been all over the place this summer talking about Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, and the NPR stations here in L.A. 
And now he has a new book out. It's on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Jody Armour, welcome back. Great to be back with you, John. So what's the title of your new book? Ah, yes. Nigger Theory. And that blood-soaked epithet, that N-word, we've come up with that euphemism after the the O.J. Simpson trial when Mark Furman used it so many times that the press had to come up with some way of saying it without saying it and came up with the N-word formulation we've been using ever since. I, I take it seriously that people find that word distressing, painful, violent. It has roots in a unapologetically and avowedly racist past, and many believe that current applications and expressions of it, it's tainted fruit of the, of the poisonous tree. I understand all that, of course, agree with it 100%, but I also recognize the power of Black artists and also writers and others to harness other potential in the word. Uh, people like Tupac Shakur, Nas, Cube, Jay-Z, Dave Chappelle, for that matter. There are, a lot, there are a number of Black writers and artists who have found a way to engage in oppositional discourse through using that barb epithet contrary to its usual meaning. When Chris Rock says, I love Black people, but I hate niggas, He's using the N-word in its traditional, ugly, vicious sense. Somebody like Tupac Shakur, he's using the term as a term of endearment, as a term of solidarity, a, will, a, a, a standing in solidarity with these brothers who I recognize as targets of this historical epithet just like me. We both share that faith that we are what has historically been referred to as N-words here in this nation. And yet we are going to maintain our sinews of connection, our solidarity, our love and affection for one another, despite how the, other world, the rest of the world looks at us and tries to otherize us. So you open your book with a political battle cry. You say, call me the N-word. And then you quote an eloquent critic of yours who points out that Look, you went to Harvard. You're a tenured professor with a named chair. You live in a beautiful house on the top of a hill. He says, you, sir, are not an N-word. You reply to this. You have a magnificent reply to this. Uh, I'd like you to read it. I'd be glad to share this with you, John. But I say, call me a nigga first and foremost to assert solidarity with and express love for a criminally condemned man whose conviction relegated him to the status of a nigga in the eyes of many, and whose legacy lives in every word I speak or scribble about blame and punishment. I look at our criminal justice system through lenses ground and polished by his experience. I cannot think about legal writing without seeing a black man desperately click-clacking on a royal manual typewriter on his cell floor deep into the night in search of his own salvation. That man, doing 22 to 55 in the Ohio State Penitentiary for possession and sale of marijuana, he was my dad. All that stood between him and a lifetime of iron bars and cell blocks and prison yards was word work. Nothing but the Queen's English 
he and that royal keyboard could crank out. After teaching himself to talk and think like a lawyer from the warden's own law books, he drafted his own writs and represented himself pro se through the state and federal court system, delivering his own oral arguments to appellate tribunals along the way, and ultimately vindicating himself in Armour versus Salisbury, a Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals case I now teach to my first year criminal law students. Hashtag poetic justice. <laughs> Hashtag poetic justice. So your father got himself out of prison in Ohio and changed the law in America. You know, most of the focus of the movement for black lives has been on the police, police killing black people, defunding the police. But you say the prosecutors are key figures in the justice system and that radically progressive prosecutors right now are reinventing the role of the district attorney. Tell us a little about them. Oh yeah, we've come to realize that the linchpin of mass incarceration, really one of the core drivers of it is the prosecutor's office, uh, law and order, tough on crime DAs. We went from uh, prosecuting one out of three people who came before a prosecutor roughly for felons to almost two out of three. Prosecutorial discretion was exercised in such a way as to, as to charge as a felon. And you just do the math on that and you can see that that's going to add up to um, bulging jail and prison cells very quickly. The tide started to turn over the last four or five years with the election of people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, in which he was elected to the head DA position as someone who'd never prosecuted a case in his career or life, who had been a public defender and defense attorney only his entire career, and ran on the following platform, in cash bail, addressed police misconduct, in mass incarceration, and got 75% of the voters of Philadelphia in the general election to vote for him. That, John, was unthinkable 10 years ago. And now it's an everyday reality because the Overton window has shifted that much, and I'm trying to help that shifting window with this book. A lot of the present argument about the police and the justice system demands an end to the criminalization of nonviolent, low-level drug offenses, which we are told have been responsible for mass incarceration of people of color. A lot of people are demanding that the police instead focus on the violent offenders, the murderers and the rapists. Tell us about the violent offenders. When we think about criminals, we already have a population we otherize. That's why Chris Rock felt so comfortable doing it in his routine. On top of that level of otherization, there's another level that we reserve for violent criminals. We say that violent criminals are the worst of the worst. We don't have any sympathy, care, or concern for their well-being very often. Um, Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking work, The New Jim Crow, counted for its rhetorical efficacy on the idea that most of the people in prison are there for no, low-level nonviolent drug offenses. She said we went from 300,000 prisoners in 1980 to 2.2 million in the mid-aughts by locking up low-level nonviolent drug offenders. The reality is, as John Pfaff showed in his book, Locked In, when you look at the state system, which is where 87% of the prisoners reside, only five to six percent of them are there for low-level nonviolent drug offenses. When I take my students to, Qu to San Quentin and we spend time with the, in, with, with, the, with the people in the 
in the in San Quentin, I, I haven't seen a low-level nonviolent drug offender out there yet. I'm not saying there aren't any there. We don't run across them. What you're really dealing with, if you want to deal with decarceration and making deep cuts in mass incarceration, is racialized mass incarceration in particular, is violent and serious offenders. Most of the people going into state prisons every year are there going in for violent offenses. We have to come up with a new moral framework under the under the you know kind of new Jim Crow, the liberal new Jim Crow narrative under Michelle Alexander's narrative. You don't really need a new moral framework. You're just, all you need is to say that these low-level nonviolent drug offenders, who aren't any different than the rest of us, should get some leniency, some human compassion. That's all. Treat them like you would treat yourself because you're just like them. When it comes to violent offenders, you're not saying that. You're saying. I'm not like a rapist. I'm not like a murderer. You know, uh, they're not, what they did isn't an ordinary expression of human frailty, you know, across the board anyway. And so you need to come up with a new moral compass to really address how we think about, feel about, and address that population of prisoners. And that's what uh, this book, Nigga Theory, is largely about. So then let's talk about what is the framework you have for treating what you call guilty black people who have committed violent offenses? We need to shift our focus from retribution, retaliation, and revenge, which has guided a lot of our penal policy for the last 30, 40 years, and still does in a lot of ways, shifted from that to redemption, rehabilitation, reconciliation, restoration. Those are just fundamentally different approaches predicated on the idea that this wrongdoer who did do something wrong, may, for example, in a violent act, caused a death and tore apart a family and caused tremendous suffering. And that can't be low-balled, downplayed, or, 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 or given short shrift in any way in any of these discussions. I don't try to, and I don't think these progressive prosecutors try to either. It's just that we try to come up with a way that can prevent that from happening again in the future, address the harm that has occurred, make sure that the wrongdoer be, is, is held accountable for that wrongdoing in some significant way, takes responsibility for it, owns it. You know, there are a lot of things we can do short of putting somebody in a, on a gurney and giving them a lethal injection or locking somebody up just for a life until they uh, get old and die of age or some pandemic that sweeps through uh, these prisons, which are the real hotspots of COVID-19 these days. So you say rehabilitation, redemption, and restoration, and you say that requires in us compassion and humility. Tell us about that. Yeah, the kind of humility that, that makes you unwilling, hesitant to make righteous moral judgments of others. It's the kind of humility that says, I have some epistemic humility about my capacity to know the just deserts of others. Because, you know, it's hard a lot of times to make those decisions, even if you don't bring in the racial bias factor. When I sit down, in, I've sat down in San Quentin with my students and um, men doing life without parole and um, mothers of murder victims in a program called No More Tears. And each session goes roughly the same um, that I attended with my class. 
a, a, you know, a mother of a murder victim, for example, stand up and say, this is my loved one. Here's what losing my loved one did to our family. It tore us apart. Here's some pictures that we pass around. We see the loved one who was, 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 was killed and tore this family apart through the loss of that loved one. And then we sit with that. And then uh, uh, one of the men sends a life without parole for a um, typically a violent homicide would stand up and say, here's my victim. Here's the person whose life I took. And here's the family I caused this loss to, caused this pain and suffering to. All right. And, and let's say you have 10 minutes. He spent the first five minutes talking about that, passing pictures around. Then he spent the last half of his time saying, the person who did that, you know, who, who, who caused that death, who committed that, that heinous crime was a depraved individual. Then he said, let me tell you how I became that depraved individual. Let me tell you about, and often the stories would be about the foster care homes I was put in from a very early age. The being locked in car trunks as a disciplinary measure for three and four hours at a time, the cigarette burns, the molestation. Let me tell you about how I became that person, right? And then we sit there with that, right? And it, it, it blunts the edge of our retributive urge to hear those other narratives, that other story about, you know, how it is that a lot of times victimizers are themselves victims, that hurt people hurt people, that morality itself is complex and we need to be, we need to embrace epistemic humility when it comes to making moral judgments in, you know, settings that are often like this, in which we just don't have all the background information and we just can't judge another's just desserts with that kind of accuracy. Hurt people hurt people. Jody Armour, his new book on race, language, unequal justice, and the law is titled Inward Theory with inward spelled in asterisk GGA. It's out now from LARB Books. It has an introduction by Larry Krasner, the radically progressive district attorney of Philadelphia, and a magnificent foreword by Melina Abdullah, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles. It's the number one new release on courts and the law at Amazon. Jody Armour, congratulations on this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. Always a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Ella Taylor with Virus Time Television Viewing. Let's call it VTTV. Or is that VTTVV, Virus Time Television Viewing? In any case, ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a long time film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hi, John. Pleasure to be here. So what do you have for us today? Well, I have a film that I kind of don't want to call a documentary, though it is a documentary, but it makes it sound boring. It's called Epicentro. 
and you can see it on Kino Marquee, which has its own website. That's Kino with a K. Um, and there you can buy a ticket to it much as you would in a movie theater. Um, Kino, uh, some listeners may know, is a um, distributor of really, really good uh, independent films of all kinds. And this is an effort to try and help the uh, independent movie industry and exhibition industry um, by having people buy tickets much as they would at the movies. It is really worth your while. In this case, you do not have to be a member to sign up for a movie. So it's, there's no subscription costs at all, only the price of a ticket. Um, and it is a, a, a kind of image and dialogue essay on Cuba but very much from the bottom up. Um, it's kind of a, a history of, of Cuba in the post-colonial era from the time of the explosion of the USS Maine, uh, when the United States basically took over Cuba from the, the Spanish. Um, so they were exchanging one empire for another. And uh, it's, it's contemporary. The director is Hubert Sauper, who is a, uh, an Austrian filmmaker who's quite renowned for two other documentaries that I might mention. One is We Come as Friends, which is about the war in Sudan. Um, and the other is da uh, Darwin's Nightmare, um, which is about the fishing industry's impact on the environment. Everything we've mentioned sounds very dry, but it's anything but. Um, he's a very lyrical filmmaker, quite mischievous too. And he gives us the, the history of, of post-colonial Cuba, mostly through the eyes of uh, Havana residents, uh, noting meanwhile that the word Havana means heaven, especially two little girls um, who are highly intelligent and also thoroughly indoctrinated, as we will find out, which I'll talk about in a minute. They are also extremely beautiful. And that's worth mentioning, not just for its own sake, but because their uh, rather typical Cuban beauty comes from a whole lot of ethnic mixing, uh, which went along with the, the colonial heritage. Uh, and the importing, the, the importing, as in, say, Hawaii, in some respects, of, of different ethnicities. So they really are quite stunning. They are enormously high-spirited. Uh, I can't remember whether one or both of them is the daughter of a sex worker. They are from the working class. But in some ways, they're very educated, and they coast us through um, today's Havana, to make a, a kind of case study in the gap between utopia and dystopia. So that, you know, it, Cuba has been described as Paradise Island. It is a very beautiful place and so on. But it is also filled with the most unspeakable poverty, which you can read either as a result as its colonial heritage or as the mismanagement of, of Fidel Castro. But these two little girls and, and their parents have been well-schooled in American colonialism. On the other hand, you know, when you have a preteen using the words, our political discourse, you've got to know that some rather compulsory education has occurred there. And it's dealt with in a very mischievous way, but it's there. He does not 
he, there is a voiceover by the director, but it's not really to guide us uh, into certain conclusions. It's there to guide us through uh, Havana. In particular, um, its poorer residents who show, you know, Cuba has been described as the place where nobody owns anything, but everybody has enough. And yet, you know, that somewhat papers over the cracks because the Havana we see is desperately poor. We also see tourists going around these poor neighborhoods. Um, as one local commentator says, they are the, the lowest form of humanity. And in, in one really obnoxious case, uh, there's a very smug tourist who, who positions kids in a certain way so that he can take charming photos of aren't these kids, you know, resilient and cheerful and so on. And of course, they ask for money um, to be photographed, which is fair enough as far as I can see. And, he, and the filmmaker asks him whether he actually gives them money. And he says, no, uh, being photographed by me is a great honor. So, <laughs> Tourists, tourists do not distinguish themselves. Um, there is a lot of historical footage also of, uh, you know, dating back to Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders, which is the aptly named Rough Riders. But mostly it's a portrait of everyday life uh, in the poorer sections of Havana. There is some wonderful uh, scener scenes of the use of, of local artistic forms to provide an ironic picture of uh, American colonialism. There are some street musicians who give us a rather ironic version of Guantanamera, um, which goes along, of course, with some footage of Guantanamo. Uh, and there is an actress who is in her 30s, who is not named at the beginning, and we see her rehearsing a scene with these two marvelous little girls who are as lively as critics and exuberant and completely irrepressible. But it turns out that they are acting out a scene of domestic abuse. And the actress is none other than Una Chaplin, who is the daughter of Geraldine Chaplin, who is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. And she is just marvelous with these two girls. They obviously adore her. And uh, she's taking them through all kinds of scenarios. It's absolutely fascinating. I have a question. Yes. Why wh the Una Chaplin part is wonderful. But why is Una Chaplin in Cuba? It's not explained there. And I was asking myself the same question. Um, there must be some Cuban connection there because she speaks the language fluently. Yeah. You know? And uh, that's something that, that probably listeners can follow up by themselves, either that or I missed it, in the, because the documentary is so rich in many different things, um, especially the you know debunking or addressing the myth of uh, of the utopian. And then and then there's the wonderful scene where Una Chaplin shows the kids a movie. Yes, which is a Charlie Chaplin movie. Yes, which is actually uh, The Great Dictator. <laughs> now, you can read the great, who, who, the identity of The Great Dictator any way you like, because he leaves it up to you. Um, could be Castro, and it, uh, you know, it could be uh, the guy, who, uh, the, our current president, who, ref who he refuses to name when somebody asks him, which president, one of the little girls asked him. He also takes them, I mean, he really is a very puckish director because he takes the two girls swimming 
instructing them not to speak their own language, but only to respond to him by saying, yes, daddy. And he takes them to swim in a very swank hotel, which was apparently established by the mafia in the 1950s. And they have a wonderful time um, in this hotel. And he's masquerading rather improbably as their father because he's white. <laughs> uh, and they are black and, and uh, Cuban and so on. It, it really is. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly... Uh, beautiful to look at, uh, even in its depictions of poverty, and completely infectious in many ways. And there's a lot of great music in this movie. Yes, there is, um, of, uh, of various kinds, and uh, some of it quite unexpected, some of it local. Um, it, it is just an enormously fertile documentary. I would really call it a nonfiction movie. And what does the title mean, Epicentro? I don't know. I mean, other than the obvious, you know, epicenter, where, where maybe the, what's being described is that, that Cuba is the epicenter of, uh, of international politicking was the way I understood it. But the, nowhere in the movie did I detect anyway uh, an explanation of the title. So that was my read on it and maybe, you know, our listeners. And there's one other element of it that's fascinating, which is he, he notes that the blowing up of the USS Maine and Havana Harbor and the invention of film are simultaneous. And so there's a kind of a history of cinema and the, the falseness that cinema is capable of presenting that kind of a, another theme of the movie. Yes, very much so, and the cinema of empire. I mean, uh, Sauper's own history is, is interesting in this context. He is Austrian um, originally, and he lived in Austria with his two you know, left-wing parents, but uh, is old enough to have the shadow of Austria's role in World War II. So he escaped when he was 18 and left Austria and seems to have had a rather peripatetic existence. He lived in Paris for a while, but he's very sensitive to questions of uh, empire. Austria, not only World War II, but it had a pretty big empire there in the background. So that's a, a theme in, in all of his movies. And certainly in this one, you're quite right. So Epicentro is playing now on your computers at kinomarquee.com, K-I-N-O-M-A-R-Q-U-E-E. -E. You buy a ticket and it streams. Have I got that right? You do. Yes, that's exactly how it's done. And if you do buy a ticket, you'll be helping out the, uh, the poor movie theaters uh, and the independent film industry. And... What should we watch after we watch Epicentro? Well, after that, I suggest that um, those who have Criterion um, subscriptions, which is $11.99 a month, watch some of the films that we'll be leaving on September 30th. Now, I think I spoke before, correct me if I'm wrong, about the streaming service Canopy with a K. The reason I bring it up again here, you can get that with the Los Angeles uh, Library e-card. Uh, and amongst thousands of others, they carry many of the Criterion films, but that, if it disappears from Criterion, it will disappear from Canopy too. 
So I put together a few that we'll be leaving that are noteworthy. There are many. One is Orson Welles' 1942, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is a marvelous movie with a very storied history. Uh, there was some footage missing. You couldn't see it for many years at all about a family uh, at the turn of the 20th century. It is a gorgeous family drama and very unsentimental, this being uh, Orson Welles. And now that it's widely available, I really recommend that if, you, if, if people haven't seen it or if they want to see it again, it has to be before September 30th. There is also Sergio, a very different kind of movie, Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. You think that's different from The Magnificent Ambersons? <laughs> well, it's different from all sorts of Sergio Leone as well, except that it was the first of his spaghetti westerns um, starring Clint Eastwood, made in, in 1964. That's also going. Also, Peter Weir's The Year of Living Dangerously, which is a marvelous film about colonial politics in, in Indonesia in 19. 82, starring James Wood, mumble, 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 the right, extremely right-wing but very good actor, James Wood, and uh, Mel, Mel Gibson and Linda Hunt. Also leaving is uh, Pedro Almodovar's wonderful film High Heels, which was made in 1991, shortly after I became a film critic, so it was one of the first that we put on the cover of LA Weekly, a, mother, a very outrageous mother-daughter melodrama starring um, one of his great muses, Marisa Paredes, and Victoria Abril, who has disappeared from his movies, but it was also very wonderful. Um, in addition, a terrific documentary called Mad Hot Ballroom, uh, made in 2005, which is about uh, New York City fifth graders uh, who are learning to be to do ballroom dancing, but are also learning how to be minches uh, through the the etiquette of, of ballroom dancing. That's made by Marilyn Aguielo, uh, which I've seen, which is wonderful. Eugene Palsy, the South African uh, black filmmaker, a woman black woman filmmaker, made a film in 1985. It was her first, I believe, called A Dry White Season. Starring amazingly Donald Sutherland, Marlon Brando, and Susan Sarandon, wow. uh, and it's about South Africa at, uh, in the height of the anti-apartheid movement. I, I've seen that too; uh, very much worth well, worth watching. And a couple that I've mentioned before, but are leaving now: the Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. This is not a film made under house arrest. Uh, and another fantastically funny and wonderful film called Taxi that he made in which he cruises around Tehran meeting um, and discussing things with um, apparent passengers who are probably actors. So those are the ones that are leaving. And I want to talk, I want to flag also a couple of additions, notably um, the addition of at least two Albert Brooks movies. No, three, sorry. Um, one is his wonderful film, Mother, with Debbie Reynolds, about his relationship with his own mother, which was fraught but entirely loving. It's a, a very wonderful movie. Um, also his film, Real Life and Defending Your Life. These are more, his more experimental earlier films. So I highly recommend those. A new Agnes Varda to add to their collection, called one called Les Trois Boutons, which is a, 
a kind of anti-feminist, sorry, a feminist fantasy and an anti-Cinderella movie about a girl in a pink dress. And one other, which is uh, the very wonderful documentary Streetwise, which was made way back when, I think probably about 25 years ago by Martin Bell, which is about street kids in Seattle, uh, which I saw when I was living in Seattle. And it really is just marvelous. So those are the criteria, and I will keep you further updated uh, at another another time. Thank you, We So we have just a couple minutes left here. A final, a final pick? The final pick is a film called Feels Good Man, which is an amazing documentary, which you can find on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, and a whole bunch of others. It's about the cartoonist Matt Fury. You may not be familiar with the name, but you're probably familiar with the, the, the famous character he created, Pepe the Frog, which was about this very Eeyore-like uh, frog. He's obsessed with frogs. And it's just a wonderful, charming, um, uh, but also quite, um, how to put it, um, obsessed with bodily functions, hence the term feels good man. The twist is that Pepe, uh, the image of Pepe really took off on the internet and became an internet meme and then was appropriated by the far right um, when it made an appearance on 4chan. Uh, And it really, you know, feels good man. Uh, the phrase in, apparently appealed greatly to unemployed, unemployed or dropout nerds who were very attracted to the far right. And they created their own Pepe, who became an icon of the right. Um, of course, Matt Fury was completely aghast at this turn of events, and he mobilized several lawyers and other cartoonists for a Save Pepe campaign, Okay. Um, in which uh, it was called a, a database of love. <laughs> and then it was appropriated by the Hong Kong uh, activists for democracy, who found themselves very much comforted by the image of, of Pepe. So uh, it's, it's a lovely documentary, both charming and appalling on, on so many levels. Uh, Matt Fury is a delightful nerdish character himself and uh, his partner who also appears on it who gives a history of, of Pepe. Um, if you are sensitive about bodily functions, you may want to screen out part of this, but I do recommend it highly. Save Pepe from the white supremacists, a cause that I hadn't been familiar uh, with, but it's featured in the film Feels Good Man, now streaming on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, and other platforms. We've also talked about the grand prize winning world documentary at Sundance Epicentro on Cuba Today, playing now in Kino Marquee Virtual Cinemas, and a whole bunch of, of films about to expire on the Criterion Channel, recommending you to go to Canopy with a K using your LA Public Library e-card. Ella Taylor, thanks so much for this week's VT TV picks. E-I-E. Enjoyed it enormously. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.